We're spending the summer looking at where the Bible calls something new. Today we come to new sight. There are many occasions in Scripture where Jesus gives sight to the blind. If we think of the Gospels, probably no story is more prominent than that which is in the 10th chapter of Mark, the healing of Bartimaeus. Listen for God's word. <clears throat> they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet. But he cried out even more loudly, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and said, Call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. Then Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately, he regained his sight and followed Jesus on the way. The word of the Lord. Thank you. <clears throat> Years ago, Sam Wells got a surprise visit from a man he hardly knew. He was a CEO of a prominent corporation in the town where Wells was a pastor, this man was one of those people who, however accomplished he was, somehow the hair and the shoes and the clothes never quite worked together well. Wells had only met him once before, very briefly, and he said, he sat in the corner of my study, chewing his fingernails and holding rather nervously a homemade cassette. Now, for those here who may not know, a, an audio cassette was that thing that we used to record music on before compact disc, which you may not know was before music just dropped from the cloud. Anyway, <clears throat> well said, I guess that small talk wasn't what my visitor came for. The man broke the ice. I've come to see you because there's nobody else I can tell this. I want to be a Christian. In my world, that's talking crazy. Last night I got up in the early hours and made this tape and it says, what I want to say, and I want to leave it with you because there's no one else I know to give it to. That man probably became a Christian the moment he handed over that tape. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Before that moment, there were probably years of wrestling and many sleepless nights. Sometimes it's as difficult as that. But in the end, the CEO just drove across town to find the only pastor he kind of knew, handed over the tape, and that was that. That man and his little cassette tape may be the closest we'll come to finding Bartimaeus. Mark's gospel is divided into two halves. The first half is set in Galilee. Jesus heals people and he calls disciples, and in between he teaches often in parables. He gets into trouble with the authorities. In the second half of the gospel, the scene shifts to Jerusalem. There, Jesus faces controversy and his identity is disclosed and he's led to crucifixion. The story of Bartimaeus is the climax of the first half of Mark's gospel. 
To understand Bartimaeus, we need to go back to the parable of the sower, which is back in Mark chapter 4. There, Jesus talks about four kinds of earth, the path, the rocky ground, the thistles, and the good soil. The first half of Mark's gospel illustrates these four kinds of discipleship. Some seed falls on the path, like the religious authorities who reject Jesus outright. Some seed falls on stony ground, like the disciples who tend to wither every time there is opposition. Some seeds fall among the thorns. That's the rich young man who Jesus calls, but who just can't leave his money behind. And then there's the good soil. This refers to those who hear and accept the word and bear fruit in abundance. There aren't a lot of these in Mark's gospel, but Bartimaeus is one of them. Mark's gospel tells a story in which those who are professional holy people and those who have the most exposure to Jesus and his teaching and those who have the most money and status all fall away and are supplanted by this solitary blind beggar who alone almost does what Jesus asks. He follows Jesus on the way. Thus, as the final verse of the first half of Mark's gospel puts it, the first become last, and the last, this blind beggar Bartimaeus, becomes first. The heart of the story of Bartimaeus lies in his cloak. The cloak is the one thing he has. It's the source of his protection, from rain and wind and dust and cold. It's also the source of his income, kind of like a busker on the sidewalk has an open guitar case. This is the crisis of the story. Bartimaeus has one thing and wants one thing. He has a cloak he wants to see. How much does he want to see? Enough to part with the cloak? Absolutely. He parts with the one thing he has in order to receive the one thing that really matters. And Jesus stands still as if to emphasize the timelessness of this moment and ask Bartimaeus the penetrating question for him, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus has no hesitation. He knows exactly what to say. The rest of the first half of Mark gives us plenty of examples of people who, unlike Bartimaeus, can't bring themselves to shed their cloak. They're people like us. This story confronts us with two overwhelming questions. Are we prepared to shed our cloak? And when we come face to face with Jesus, do we know what to say? how fervently we organize our lives so we are never in Bartimaeus' position. Isn't that what accumulation is all about? Wealth and possessions are the most resilient type of cloak I know. They protect us from the vulnerability of facing personal or medical or career or social disaster. The trouble is, and we all know this, the more we possess, the more our possessions seek to possess us. Managing money, managing property, managing our public image is time-consuming and fraught with anxiety. It can become overwhelming. We can become like that Michelin tire character, surrounded by tires, layers and layers of insulation. So the idea of springing to our feet and going to follow Jesus seems 
impossible. And when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you, our first instinct bound in that cloak is almost bound to be a request for more insulation. Uh, Jesus, could you keep the house prices going up for a few more years? But wealth and possessions are by no means the only cloak. For James and John in the Gospel of Mark, status is just as compelling. And what is status really and why do we crave it? Status is a way of trying to assure ourselves we have everyone's admiration so we convince ourselves we don't need their love. That's what the CEO who paid Sam Wells the surprise visit was struggling with. He was coming to terms with the reality that he was gonna lose people's admiration by saying he was a Christian. And he was gonna need their love in a way he never had to have or ask for before. If we won't allow ourselves to shed the cloak of status, and Jesus asks us, what do you want me to do for you? What will we say? Something like, make everyone admire me or envy me or at least fear me, but never put me in a position where I have to ask for their love? Knowledge. Knowledge is its own kind of cloak doesn't matter whether that knowledge is philosophy or law or medicine or theology or physics. When we've read all the primary literature and every single scholarly article on the subject, we've built a pretty impressive cloak. We know all there is to know. We can think of a thousand reasons not to leap to our feet and follow Jesus. A hundred ways in which we can analyze and deconstruct Jesus' call to us. But where does that get us facing Jesus' question, what do you want me to do for you? Um, Jesus, build me a bigger library? Alas, cloaks aren't just worldly things. There are religious cloaks, too. There is the cloak of our religious experience, the cloak of our particular religious approach. Maybe we're worried that other Christians seem a bit fuzzy on matters of scripture or ethics or how to do this or how to view that and whatever we've tried so hard and so long to be certain about. Our certainty, our religious orthodoxy and righteousness, that too can become a cloak. So then when we stand face to face with Jesus and he asks, what do you want me to do with you? All we would have to say is, Jesus just proved that my way of thinking about you is right and all these other people are wrong, that would be great. We may have made for ourselves the cloak of social righteousness where we've managed to boycott all the right things and avoid eating all the wrong things and to correct everyone when we catch them saying something inappropriate. What will we say when Jesus asks, what do you want me to do with you? Will we find ourselves saying, with all due respect, Jesus, isn't it time for you to start driving a Prius just like I do? <laughs> and then there's one last cloak that we may have. It's a tendency to think of the Christian faith as some sort of life insurance policy. Something that doesn't require a great deal of us in our lifetime other than verbal assent and then a monthly or bi-monthly withdrawal from our bank account. It needs a bit of adjustment when there's a major life transition, a wedding or a funeral. 
But otherwise, it just renews over and over again like a useful but unobtrusive life insurance policy, lifting anxiety about the future, we think, making it easier to plan for the unknown and how we love to try to plan for the unknown. We're used to delegating all sorts of complex parts of our lives to professionals. How convenient we can get God to handle the eternal life contract and not have to think about it. When Jesus says to us, what do you want me to do for you? We'll just say, give me what I've paid good money for. Now, if we remotely see ourselves in any of these descriptions, or if it is family or nation or any other prime loyalty that has become our cloak, The story of Bartimaeus and the new sight he received is saying one simple thing to us today. It's time to shed our cloak. Making such a cloak for ourselves amid the uncertainty of life and the fear of death is completely understandable. It's how we cope. Keeping such a cloak as our source of identity and security is a very common thing. We all do it. But if we truly want to meet Jesus face to face, if we long to leap up in delight and joy because we've put our trust in no one and nothing but him, it's time to shed our cloak. Imagine Jesus calling you from the other side of a fast-flowing river. You're wearing your cloak, your precious, custom-made cloak. He's calling you by name, and you start to cross the water to get to him still wearing the cloak. You go deeper and deeper, and as you do, the cloak gets heavier and heavier. And anyone watching knows that if you don't shed the cloak, not only aren't you gonna get to Jesus, you're not gonna make it back to either side of the river. I wonder how many of us are in that position today. I wonder whether this is where you are in one way or another right now. It's time to shed the cloak. It's time to part with the insulation, to dispense with the insurance package that prevents us from coming face to face with Jesus. The rich young man wouldn't part with his money. That was his cloak. James and John wouldn't part with their status. That was their cloak. It's time to shed the cloak. God shed God's cloak by appearing naked in a manger in Bethlehem and being naked on a cross outside of Jerusalem. God shed God's cloak because God so desperately wanted to stand before us face to face. It's time for us to shed ours so we can stand before God face to face. It's time to shed the cloak. But why do we have to shed it? Because the day will come, the time will come when Jesus asked you, what do you want me to do for you? And if we're all bound up in the cloak, we're going to be very limited in the range of answers we can provide Jesus. In particular, we're going to find it impossible to give the answer that Jesus wants to hear We're not going to be able to leap up in joy like that blind beggar. We're going to find ourselves dreading the conversation. When Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you, 
Bartimaeus simply said, let me see again. Think about what those words really mean. Bartimaeus is saying to Jesus, I want you to change my identity. Bartimaeus is blind and he's a beggar. That's what he is and how he makes a living. When he begins to see, he loses his identity as a blind man and his security of income as a person other people feel obligated to help. He's stepping out into the unknown into a world he cannot begin to imagine. Small wonder he didn't want to shed his cloak. Because when we shed our cloaks, we step out into the unknown, and we do not like at all ever having to step out into the unknown. We'd find ourselves standing before Jesus and saying what Bartimaeus said, I want you to give me a new identity. I want to become what only you can make me. I want to open my eyes and enter a whole new reality, like the blind man opening his eyes to see the world for the first time. Let me into that world, please, Jesus. I'm leaving my cloak behind. I realize it is now useless. Let me into your world. After that CEO left Sam Wells' house all those years ago, Wells found himself just standing there with this cassette in his hand. He went over to the player and put it in and pressed play. He heard the sound of his visitor <clears throat> clearing his throat in a pretty self-conscious way. Then there was a long silence. <clears throat> and then he cleared his throat again. And then to his astonishment, Wells heard this proud man begin to sing a simple song. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. Oh.